Well, it first premiered on November 10th, 1969. Many of you grew up with it. Characters became everyday household names. Big Bird, Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, Bert and Ernie, the Cookie Monster, the Count, Oscar the Grouch. And if I didn't name your favorite, get over it. You're grown up now. <laughs> In that first Sesame Street episode, Susan sang a song to teach well, to teach a letter and a number, but also to teach differentiation to those very young viewers. This was the very first scene of those uh, four items that became a staple on the show. Uh, not, uh, one not like the others as they introduced the letter W and the number 2. You no doubt remember the song. Please don't sing it. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which one is not like the others by the time I finish my song? In the show, the one different was quite obvious to older viewers, but for younger children, it was, it was teaching them the beginnings of, uh, of observation and differentiation and critical thinking skills. As children grow up, those skills are expected to increase. For example, this series of pictures is a little more difficult uh, then the, those on Sesame Street, I'll give you a minute. It is, after all, for third graders. <laughs> Eventually, you perhaps took the SAT where you were to select a word in a series of words that did not belong with the others. And those of you who have taken the SAT, feel free to groan along with me. Differentiation is very important. Differences. Without it, there would not be 16 flavors at Sweet Frog. <laughs> there would be like vanilla. And I would not currently be irritated that they don't have banana. Can someone please tell me how orange beat out banana in a recent vote? I stuffed the ballot box and still lost. What is wrong with you people? If there was no differentiation, there would not be Scott and Michael Haynes. There would just be, hey, boy, since that's what most of you do anyway, since you can't tell them apart. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. The ease with which you differentiated those early pictures and the difficulty that later images produce, illustrates well a point that I want to make in our text this morning. You see, in our, in our continuing study of the book of Ephesians, Paul begins to draw a stark contrast, differentiation, observable differentiation between believers and non-believers. The difference is so stark that I would suggest it ought to be obvious. It ought to be as obvious as a W in the, midst of a, in the middle of a bunch of twos. Jesus called us to be light in a world of darkness. That ought to be obvious. We're to be a city on a hill, salt in the midst of moral decay and corruption. That ought to be obvious. The problem, well, the problem is some 
Well, some of us try to be so like the world that you can't, well, that you can't pick us out. So here's my question for you this morning. Are you different? Can, can people tell that there's something different about you? Now, listen, I did not ask, are you odd? I did not ask, are you weird? I said, are you different? Can people tell by looking at you, and, and, I, and I mean hanging out with you a little bit, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, or do you hold that incognito pretty well? Let me be clear. I am not talking about the externals. I am not talking about the clothes you wear, although you ought to be holy in the way you dress. I'm not talking about how you wear your hair. Frankly, it doesn't matter whether it's pink or blue. I'm not talking about piercings, although let's just be honest, some of those are weird. I'm not talking about whether or not you carry your Bible to school, have a cross tattooed somewhere on your body, or a fish on the back of your car. See, I'm not talking about the externals. I'm not talking about the outside, I'm talking about the inside. Yes, who we are on the inside ought to affect the way that we look on the outside. There ought to be a sharp contrast, a difference between believers and non-believers. And people ought to be able to pick us out, spend a little time with us, and say, weird. So they ought to be able to spend some time with us and tell that we're different in the way that we think and the way that we act. Here's my question, can they tell that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Look at the text with me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and following say this, so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, you did not learn Christ this, in this way. If, if indeed you have heard him and, and been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, this is what you learned in reference to your former manner of life. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, and has been created in righteousness and holiness. Of the truth. So here's the question for you this morning. Which, which paragraph, there are two paragraphs, there are actually two long sentences in the Greek, which one describes you? There ought to be a difference. Outline of the text is really quite simple. We're going to see Paul describes the walk of, uh, describing the walk of non-believers. He calls them Gentiles in verses 17 and 19. And then he's going to describe the walk of believers, verses 20 to 24, which really just launches us into the rest of the book. Please, please notice the stark black and white contrast that he draws and the expectation to walk differently from those around us. My challenge for us this morning and the weeks to come is that we will seek to walk, now listen to me, 
not as closely to the not as close to the line as possible so that people have trouble telling whether or not we're Christians you go through a whole week and no one ever thinks you're different that's a problem but rather that we walk I want to encourage us to walk as far away from the line as possible pursuing holiness and righteousness Christ likeness Love the way Scott Burns says this. He often challenges the youth. He says, they always want to know, how, how far can I go and still be holy? You know, with my girlfriend or my boy. How far can I go? He says, that's a stupid question. Why don't you maybe ask the question, how holy can I be? People ought to be able to tell right off we're different. We need to be salt and light. One of these things needs not to be like the others. Remember that Paul at this point is transitioned in his letter. He spent the first three chapters in doctrine, highlighting that great salvation and its benefits. Then he spends these next three chapters that we started uh, uh, talking about how our lives ought to be impacted by the gospel. He started by introducing the Christian life as a walk. I implore you. I urge you, I plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Your walk ought to be of equal weight. It ought to match your high and holy calling in Christ, does it? You spent the next section, which we spent a couple of weeks on, verses 2 to 16, talking about a walk of unity. Our unity is to be characterized by patience and humility and gentleness and tolerance and in love. But, 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 but now listen, it's because I said the word tolerance. Don't think it's unity at any cost. It's unity built on the foundation of truth, the truth of our, of our triune God, which leads to one faith, one baptism, one hope, one body. And that body is to serve one another with the gifts that Christ has given. In fact, he went on to say, Christ has given gifted leaders to the church to equip the saints to use those gifts to build up the body. It's going to keep us firmly united in our faith, firmly united in our knowledge of the Son of God, and we will be building up the body, building up ourselves in love. And so now Paul moves from unity to purity. Purity, you see, ought to characterize the body of Christ. Both are necessary, both unity and purity. See, you can have unity without purity. Think political party. Think fraternity. Think sorority. Unity, sometimes not a lot of purity. We need both. Now, when I say purity, don't just think of things that Christians don't do. We're speci- we specialize it on that. And it does include that. Paul is going to describe how unbelievers walk and say, don't do that. There are things that we don't do. But he's going to go on to say, this is how I want you to walk. In fact, he's going to spend the rest of the book talking about it. Christians don't walk in certain ways. That's true. But our walk ought to be characterized by different attitudes and different actions so that that people see something different in us. So this I say, he says, and affirm together with the Lord, meaning this carries the authority of me, the Apostle Paul, And it also carries, even more than that, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, that you walk 
That is, that you conduct yourselves in a way that is different from those around you. How do those people around us walk? Well, he tells us. It brings us to our first point. Uh, what is the walk of non-believers? He calls them Gentiles. And he goes on to paint a very dark, a very grim picture. You see, much like, much like who we are on the inside impacts the way that we live on the outside, the, who they are on the inside impacts the way they live. Character creates conduct. Their ungodly thinking produces ungodly lifestyle. And he says, not you. We no longer walk as the Gentiles. Here's how they walk. They walk in the futility of their mind. I'm just going to go through these quickly. This speaks of meaningless, empty ideas, pers- meaningless perspectives. It speaks of thinking that is vain, void, devoid of purpose, in that it's not ordered around God. It's not ordered around His purposes. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, translates that word futility often, for, for example, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it translates it with the word vanity, futility apart from God. Their lives are devoid of real meaning. They think they're going somewhere, they're spinning their wheels. The sage asks the question, what is the meaning of life? And any answer apart from God is, it is total meaninglessness, purposelessness, futile thinking. Now, let me be real clear that Paul's not saying that necessarily that, that, that nonbelievers are stupid, okay? Don't, don't, don't hear that. I, I know, and I know you know some really smart nonbelievers. He's talking about their inability to reason rightly and inability to make moral judgments and proper choices. Those really, really smart people that you know, sometimes you are flabbergasted that they can make the moral choices that they make. How, how can you actually do that? Futile thinking. Leads to their being darkened in their understanding. That's just about the same as futility of mind and inability to make right and appropriate lifestyle choices. But here, Paul is kind of moving, and it's going to become very, very important through the rest of this description. He he, he is stressing their own culpability. They have chosen this willful darkness. Yes, thinking is futile. Yes, understanding is darkened. But this does not release them from personal responsibility. Their minds and their understandings are selfishly and willfully darkened. Direct contrast to you. Remember in chapter 1, he says, you, you have enlightened minds, not them, darkened. Darkened minds leads to the ignorance that is in them. I, I, I know, I, I know, non-believers think we're the ones who are ignorant. I know. I know that it's in vogue to... Take out ads or full-page ads or, or, or billboards inviting, inviting us to leave our outdated, um, archaic myths. But Paul says they are the ones who are ignorant. Futile thinking, willfully darkened minds, they, they, they live in intentional ignorance even though the very heavens around them declare the glory of God. And look at that, See, it's be really, really smart, and go, how can you look at that and say, no? 
Ignorance is no excuse for personal responsibility. Romans 1 makes abundantly, abundantly clear that God has not left himself without a witness. The very creation points to the fact that there is a creator God, a knowledge that unbelievers have willfully suppressed so as to live out their sinful desires. Now, don't miss that. See, he's talking about beliefs that produce a certain behaviors. And if your beliefs and your behaviors don't match up, guess what? Something's got to change. And so if, if, if this is the way I'm acting, that it doesn't match my belief, I've either got to change my behavior or I've got to change my belief. So it's just real easy to suppress the knowledge of God so I can live how I want. It leads to the fourth characteristic, hardened hearts. Speaks of being cold and dead. It reminds us of chapter 2 when Paul said, we were dead in trespasses and sin. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the course of the, of the evil one, according to our own sinful flesh. We were rightly by nature objects of wrath. When the Scripture speaks of hardness, it, it, it includes this idea of stubbornness. Once again, we see this idea of culpable uh, culpability because of their willful self-hardening. And then in the middle of this deplorable description, because of futile thinking, darkened understanding, ignorance, and hard hearts, they are excu- excluded from the life of God, that life that God alone has and that He grants only to His children, this life that includes forgiveness, this life that includes eternal life, They're excluded from that. Paul uses some of these same words in, in, a, in a rather lengthy description, but I think it bears reading in, in Romans chapter 1. Look at it with me, and I want you to notice the downward spiral that takes place with all of humanity. It says, for even though they, humanity knew God, <coughs> they did not honor Him as God or, or give thanks, nor were they thankful, but they became futile, that's the same word, in their speculations, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, form of a man or birds and animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function of that for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. You know what he's talking about there. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. So notice that phrase, God keeps giving them over to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with. Now, look at this list. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Don't forget that one. We'll come back to that. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know in their heart of hearts, although they know this is wrong, 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who are doing it. They clap. They say, way to go. That's cool. This is not a pretty picture. Futile thinking, darkened understanding, hard-hearted ignorance. This is who unbelievers are characteristically. Now, I know that doesn't mean that they do all of that list all of the time, but this is who they are characteristically. And frankly, I want to remind you, it's who we were. Don't, don't look at this list and think yourself holier than thou. These, beha- these attitudes lead, lead to some sin-filled behaviors. Verse 19, they become callous, insensitive to God, insensitive to right and wrong. They've lost, <coughs> this means that they lost the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. You know people like that? They've given themselves over to it. That's interesting. Paul said in Romans 1, God gave them over. Here he says they give themselves over to it. It's not a contradiction. They just give themselves over to sin. God says, you want sin? Here, have some more of it. And he gives them over. What is the description of their sinfulness? It tells us, verse 19, they have given themselves over to sensuality. The old word it used to be translated as debauchery. It speaks of throwing off all restraint, retaining no sense of public decency. It's a flaunted self-indulgence an obsessive propensity to live for themselves. And with the phrase that follows, it includes, of course, every kind of sexual sin given over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. That's second. This includes, not limited to, but includes every kind of sexual pleasure. It speaks of promiscuity. The word um, also includes all kinds of moral, immoral living. For example, inherent in that word is the idea of drinking and carousing. We call it partying today, and all that comes with that. And there's no sense of public shame. How do I know? Look at Facebook. It's shocking, the pictures that people put on, say, look what we were doing. This sensuality and purity comes with greediness Interesting word choice. Not only do they indulge in sinful desires, but there is a continual, insatiable desire for more. They're never desired with the sin they have. They always want more. In fact, one said it becomes a vicious circle because new forms of perversion must be invented to replace the old ones. That's why Paul said in Romans 1, they're inventors of evil. Well, that was really good. Let's see if we can make it worse. Not a pretty picture. He is saying this is the way non-Christians think. It's fully corrupt, leads to engage in impure conduct, which results in being separated from God. Three-step process, ungodly thinking, ungodly actions, separation from God. Serious indictment. And Paul is calling us not to live this way. This is not who you are. Now, now, as I said earlier, read this description. I I don't want you to develop attitudes of condemnation, but rather compassion. Because we need to remember that we were once this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Who are the unrighteous? Well, let me tell you. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals. Say, well, I'm doing pretty good on those. Thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. 
They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. But we've left that. We're no longer supposed to live like that. And Paul doesn't leave us in the quagmire. Don't live like that. He goes on to tell us how we live. Here's the, here's the question. You're going, Scott, I live in the world. We're going to leave here. We're going to leave this nice audit. That was maybe a, a stretch. We're going to leave this auditorium th- 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 this afternoon, and we're going to be at work tomorrow. I'm going to be at school tomorrow. I'm going to live in an ungodly environment tomorrow. And if I were honest with you, I would say sometimes I'm ungodly. Sometimes when I go into the world, I act like the world. So how do I do this? He reminds us of some very important spiritual truths, point two. And I can spend a lot of time on this this morning because he really goes on the rest of the book to tell us how we live as Christians. Here's the important truth number one. Verses 20 and 21 Paul speaks very importantly of their conversion and early days of discipleship, which made them different from the inside out. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you were saved? Do you remember when you became a follower of Jesus Christ that you were changed? Remember that? The word evokes the image of a school, their relationship with Jesus Christ. Through their relationship with Christ, they received a new identity, and their lives are to be shaped by Him and His teaching. You did not learn, you didn't learn Christ this way. He's pointing to an event that passes when you, be, when you were saved. Interesting wording, by the way. You normally think about learning about Christ, but He actually says you didn't learn Christ. You didn't learn Him. You didn't learn His teaching. You didn't learn to follow Him this way. You see, it's all about Jesus. You didn't learn that when you were saved. He's both the subject of the learning and the teacher. It's of Him and from Him. If if indeed, he says, and, and, and that wording is such that in the NIV, I think it has it, surely. I mean, this is true. You have heard Him. You've been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus. When, when, when he says that they had heard him, this speaks of when they became Christians, their saving faith. They believed in Jesus. But beyond that, they were taught in him. What's taught, teaching about him, as taught by the apostles, is contained in the word of God. You were discipled. You know this is the way you're not supposed to live. This truth, by the way, is in Jesus. I, I, that's very, very important. This is the only place in the entire book that he just refers to Jesus without a title, Lord or Christ. He's talking about this truth is embodied in Jesus, the earthly Jesus, when he lived his life. You're supposed to live your life like him. This is what, by the way, you've been taught. Verses 22 to 24. First, in reference to your former manner of life, that is, Before you were Christians, you were living like Gentiles, you were living like non-believers, you learned learned that you were to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted with the lusts of deceit. Two very important truths we're supposed to get in verses 22 to 24. Paul expects us, 
to lay aside the old self like a garment, take it off, and to put on a new one. Second thing that we need to ask and answer is, when did that happen? I mean, is that something like we just keep on doing? Very important. Is Paul reminding us of something that's already happened, or is he commanding us to keep on putting off the old self right now? I want to suggest to you that it's actually both. We took off the old self at salvation. It was crucified. You were crucified with Christ. You no longer live. The life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You're dead. Your old self is dead. You were buried with him. You've been raised to walk a new life. You are a new creation. But he goes on to say that we are supposed to make sure that our lifestyle matches our identity. We actually see this in the tenses of the verbs that he uses here. He says, you were taught to lay aside. That's actually, past. you laid aside your old self and, and you put on a new self. But in the middle he says, and, and keep on renewing, present tense, keep on renewing your, the spirit of your mind. It's an ongoing process. So what Paul is saying is you were taught these three things. Lay, you laid aside the old self and that all, all that was associated with it as an unbeliever, that's gone. Why are you going back to the pig pen? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, present tense. Keep on renewing the spirit of your mind. And of course, we do that by the Holy Spirit. Third, put on, you put on already, you did this, you put on the new self. This new self is our identity in Christ, which was acquired at conversion when we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We were united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Our old flesh was put to death. We received. We became a new creation, and now Paul is saying, so act like it. Remember that? Act like it. Notice this new self was created. It means it's not just a made-over old self. Aren't you glad? It's not just a made-over old self. It's a new creation. This same God who created the heavens and the earth has created a new you. What will this new self look like? Well, he's going to tell us in the rest of the book, but he starts with this. It's created in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Holiness speaks of character, and righteousness speaks of the result of that character. Say we're moving from the inside out. You, you are right now holy. You are saints. You are holy ones, and now he's calling us. Make sure that your walk, empowered by the Spirit, matches your holiness. Make sure your act, actions are, 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 are righteous. And he'll go on to tell us what that looks like. So, question for us this morning. Can, can people tell that I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Can they tell by looking at me? It's not because I have a tie or don't have a tie. It's not because I have the big family Bible. It's not because I have a fish on the back of my car. I don't. It's not because I have a tattoo or, or not. It's not because I say praise the Lord at everything that you say. It, 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 it's because I think differently about life. 
and I act differently.